Welcome back, everyone, to Love's Labour's Watch, your favourite, of course, pop culture, women-focused podcast. For anybody who doesn't know us, or this is your first episode listening, welcome. I'm Helena. And I'm Francesca. Yeah, and we are two podcasters who have been doing this for about three years now, and we interview authors, actors, directors, and we also just chat about their work, and we chat about pop culture. We have a good old time doing it. So today, we've got an interview with a really exciting author. Uh, Francesca, do you want to give us a quick intro to our guest today? Yes, absolutely. So this month, we were so excited to get on a Zoom call and speak to debut author Zakia Dalila Harris about her novel The Other Black Girl, which is one of 2021's most buzzed about novels. Described as Get Out meets The Devil Wears Prada, the novel has become a New York Times bestseller and has already been optioned for TV. Zakia is based in Brooklyn in New York City. She has a background in publishing and also received her MFA in nonfiction creative writing from the New School and a BA from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And we were so excited to read the novel, really enjoyed it, and then get to speak to Zakia yeah. all about the themes, her ideas. After the interview, stay tuned for more of our thoughts on The Other Black Girl. And we're also going to discuss one of the pop culture juggernauts that we've really enjoyed recently, comedian Bo Burnham's Netflix special, Inside. So let's kick it off with our interview with Zakia. Enjoy. Hi. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. Really excited to have you. So it's something we like to ask kind of everyone who comes on the show. Could you just give us a spoiler-free as much as possible um, synopsis of your book, The Other Black Girl? Well, for anybody who may not have read it or maybe heard of it right now. Sure. Um, so The Other Black Girl follows primarily Nella Rogers, who is a young editorial assistant um, who works at a very prestigious and very, very white publishing house in New York City called Wagner Books. Um, she's been the only black person working there for the last few years. And so when another young black woman named Hazel starts working with her, she's super duper excited. She's like, finally, I can talk about black hair and microaggressions and not have to kind of change myself to fit into this, these conversations we have I can be myself. Um, but very quickly, um, things just things start to turn in the office um, and Nella very quickly wonders if there's something else going on with Hazel and if they're actually going to be friends or if something else is brewing beneath the surface. Um, and then of course, unfolding alongside Nella's story are the stories of three other black women. Um, their stories are all to told um, in between Nella's uh, take place during different times. Um, but they're all, all four of these women are connected to one very uh, chilling, sinister secret. The, the novel interrogates the structural racism, biases and general problems inherent in the publishing industry. And you previously worked in this world as an assistant editor, right? So we wondered mm -hmm. if you would be able to speak a little bit about how your time in publishing fed into the development of the novel and also any other influences that you had and, and things you were drawing upon. Yeah, yeah. So, so yep, I worked in um, publishing for two and a half, close to three years, and I started as an editorial assistant like Nella, and then two years in, I got promoted. Um, and, I mean, for a while, I really 
enjoyed working in publishing. I think I'd always wanted to be a writer, but I also just loved editing and very much, you know, loved that idea of working with authors, although I also wanted to be one um, at the same time. But um, I think I also had in mind the sense that, like, once I got there, like, oh, shoot, like, you guys don't really have black people here. Like, <laughs> I, I somehow made it here. Maybe I can make this a place that other black people can be in now. So I have very much had that mentality too, um, which is a very optimistic one. <laughs> um, and so I, that was something in my mind. I think also just the conversations about diversity, because there, there were some conversations specifically where I worked on how to make the hiring more diverse. Um, but those conversations very often, at least when I was there, like, got derailed or for whatever reason, people were just having a hard time fathoming what that meant. Um, so those conversations very much, I think, mirror what happens in the book of those diversity town halls of like, I mean, those are exaggerated, but <laughs> the thing is, is like, while the book, The Other Black Girl has a lot of things that, you know, a lot of things that I saw were, I found ways to put that into the book, but I often... I don't know. I was just thinking a lot about the vibe and like this environment that a lot of people were okay with of not having diverse people sitting at the table, um, entry level employees kind of feeling really stuck and not feeling like they can speak up. Um, and also just that constant uh, feeling that, you know, you're especially working in a cubicle, you're kind of a cog in the wheel in a lot of ways. Um and yeah, there are days where I, I really enjoyed it publishing and then there are days I didn't. And so I really wanted to get at all of that, just like the workplace life, the balance, like how do we find the way of balancing that um, with our own sense of selves? And so, so that's the publishing side. And so before that, before I worked in publishing, I did my MFA in nonfiction writing. And I was really thinking a few years ago about, I mean, I, I'd moved to Brooklyn in 2014. Uh, 14, right when I started my MFA. And around that time, Eric Garner was happening. Um, just a lot of, uh, there was a lot of Black death, at least that I was seeing. It felt like everything was just that much more in your face and happening all the time, especially living in New York. I ran into protests all the time. So I was very conscious of, I think around that time specifically, of like who I was. And a lot of it, you know, I was thinking about was related to my time growing up in a very white area as a kid, very much like my character, Nella. And so, so yeah, all of my own experiences of worrying about not being black enough, this like racial, uh, uh, not racial anxiety, but just feeling younger, when I was younger, feeling like I wasn't black enough and worrying that I didn't come off the right way around black people and then getting older and worrying about not coming off the right way around white people and just like what that means. So all of those things were in my mind when I started writing The Other Black Girl. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting. And I feel as if um, Nella's experience, I feel like is definitely one that is more is more universal uh, as well. So I think it's so interesting mm -hmm. to read. And um, and now you're on the other side of it, right? You said you wanted to be yeah. more, you're on the other side. So what's it been like, kind of, what's the response been like from the publishing industry? What's it been like working, especially as a, as a Black author? Um, yeah. And uh, also, yeah, what's it been like going through the process from the other way? Yeah, I mean, it's been really surreal and really meta, I think, to 
to have seen what it looks like on the other side, to, to kind of be aware also of, you know, authors have a lot of say in a lot of things, but like not all things, right? And so I think I knew before, even before I signed the book deal, I knew if I ever did write a book, I would have to have these conversations and I'd have to feel comfortable speaking out about like, I want the book to be black, black, black. Like I wanted to, I want people to pick it up and I want people to, to see blackness in some way. And nope, I mean, besides the title. So I think that for me kind of going into it, I definitely was um, a little nervous to be honest. And like knowing um, I can be like sometimes hard on myself and not speak up in the ways that I need to, but I think, I mean, thankfully my, both of my publishers have been from the get-go just like amazing about making sure this book really reflected the message of the book for me of like how, who we're targeting, what readers we're finding. And so, so it's been really, really fun, but I also know a lot of other authors of color don't have similar experiences. So I'm hoping that this will just mean better and better things for future authors uh, who find themselves in this uh, position. So it's it's been really cool. And I think the other thing I'll say is like, it's been really fun getting um, responses from specifically people in publishing too, because I think when I was writing this, I was so nervous about getting it right, you know, um, especially for black women working in publishing. And so to have people come back to me and be like, you got the cubicle life so right. Like that was something that for me just was like really satisfying because again, I wanted this book to really speak to black women, of course, black women working in publishing, but then also just people, young people, especially who have worked in these spaces and have to kind of figure out like, is this worth it? Is this worth sacrificing my entire life? Like, I mean, not to be dramatic, but <laughs> In the book, Nella, the novel's protagonist, she looks up to this black editor who used to work at Wagner Books and edited this really successful novel by a black female author. And mm -hmm. for Nella, this story only highlights the importance of black editors working with black writers. And we wondered yeah. if you could speak a bit about your perspective on this as this, yeah, it's a really interesting topic. Yeah, I mean, I, so when I was writing this book and when I was working in publishing, let me go back, I mean, I had in the back of my mind um, Toni Morrison, of her, of course, working at Random House at a time when it was, I'm sure, far harder than it was for me. Um, and so, yeah, that, that relationship between Kendra Ray and Nella was really important for me to include. I mean, the, it's not a relationship relationship, but Nella's looking back at Kendra Ray because I do think that's such a big part of I mean, who I am when I'm trying to make sense of my world, I often talk to people older than me, Black people in my family. Um, I read James Baldwin. I read Toni Morrison. I read Octavia Butler. Like, I think there's a comfort in having that generational um, kind of reach and looking back. Um, and there's also, I think, something to be said about the fact that certain things that Kendra Ray experienced, Nella is now experiencing 30 years later or whatever in, in different ways. Um, and I think that that conversation about how much has changed um, for Black people in the U.S. specifically um, and how much hasn't changed, like those are those are all things that I think I really wanted to talk about and really want to talk about with other people because it's like 
we can say like, yay, we published all of these books by so-and-so authors, but like patting ourselves on the back about that's not necessarily the right move to do. Like there's still always so much more work that needs to be done. And I think that, yeah, there's just so much that can keep happening and we should be thinking more about diversity in those ways. And so I, so yeah, I think I really wanted to have that kind of the way that Kendra Ray haunts the halls of Wagner books. Like that is such an important part of Nella's own um, kind of how she sees herself and sees herself in the the bigger picture of resistance and trying to um, inspire change in these very white workplaces. The other black girl kind of harks, um, you know, you, you note, you note in this short introduction to the edition that we've got, uh, you know, how it's all about this idea that you had, that you, you know, saw another black girl working at your office and then thought you didn't really have a good interaction with her and thought, oh, what if, you know, she's out to get me kind of thing. And it's on those, mm-hmm. you know, funny thoughts. But then I think the, the plot really goes with it and kind of makes it quite, quite insidious and like deliberate, actually. Um, you know, with one character noting that this epidemic of other black girls who change and then start mm-hmm. trying to speak out their counterparts. You know, it's interesting sort of sci-fi element to the novel. And I was wondering how much you feel that's kind of based in reality. Do you see this kind of trend in, you know, people of colour minorities? You know, is that kind of happening in real life? Not to the same extent, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh, I hope not. No. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, the thing that's been really interesting, um, specifically with Black readers reading this book, is them saying, not everyone, but I have had people say, like, I had a hazel or I had a similar experience in not just publishing, but in different industries as well. And I think that, so when I first started writing the book, I had this idea of the these two Black women working in this very white space, and one of them is off, right? But, like, the more I wrote into these characters and into their interactions, the more I saw that it, the offness, like, yes, there's a specific thing causing it, or there, there are circumstances causing it, but, like, the offness is also inspired by this very white, rigid environment, and really to go all the way back to white supremacy, like, these things are what cause them to have this very intense relationship. And, and so I, I wrote this with that in mind of this, you know, the, there is a kind of truism, if you will, of, you know, there can only be one of us. And it's usually like joking, like, haha, like we're in this horror movie, like the black person is going to die first. Like if there are two of them, like there, there's no way, like they're both going to make it to the end. Um, But there's also like a truth to that. Um, but at the same time, there's a flip side where, like, we are also kind of under this understanding um, that we're going to help up- uplift each other. And the fact that those two truisms are both things that we talk about um, and maybe make fun of or some, we, we look at more seriously in some cases than others, like, I really wanted to just get at that conversation specifically within the Black community because we know we're talking about these things, but there's there's something deeper to it than just us wanting to compete. There's there's a there's a reason why we feel like there can only be one of us. And I think we should touch on now like the sort of different genres that, that the novel mm-hmm. kind of comprises because we sort of talked a bit about it earlier. But you've got elements of thriller, elements of social satire, 
um elements that are incredibly realistic as you were just speaking about also there's like some sci-fi in there and dark humor and so the novel really <laughs> defies easy categorization in a way that's like really satisfying for a re- as a reader um but we wondered how you kind of went about like that genre mixing and was that quite intentional for you from the outset or did it sort of just turn out that way by the end yeah we're interested to know what that process was like yeah, yeah. I mean, without without giving too much away, I'll say that I have I've I've never tried to write. I mean, when I was a kid, I tried writing scary stories. Um, I loved Goosebumps as a kid and Twilight Zone and all of those kinds of things, but um, I never really tried doing it as an adult. Um, and so when I went into it, I was like, I had this idea, like I said, of these two women and something being off, but. I kind of didn't exactly know what space, like how off they were going to get Um, because yeah, it was, it was scary a little bit to, to add this genre element when I hadn't done it before. I hadn't done a lot of like, I'll admit I haven't read a lot of horror. I've mostly watched it and consumed it through TV and movies. And so, so when I was writing the book, I very much was aware of the fact that some people would not be into the, this kind of, uh, flip that happens or switch, I guess I'll say. Um, but I knew also that I think this kind of story, or at least looking back, I won't say I knew it when I was writing it, but I think looking back, it needed to have some kind of, I mean, it's not a light. In some ways, it's not light, but I did want this kind of lighter genre element because I did feel like it's lent itself so well to the space. I think publishing takes itself so seriously too. And so I think to add this kind of element to that world um, for me was just really satisfying. Um, And yeah, I just, again, like horror, like Stepford Wives, um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, like things like that, um, that really question the body and space and how we move throughout that space and how different things can affect the way we move through that space. Like I was, I've always had those kind of in the back of my mind. And so the more I wrote um, about the characters and their relationships and who was pulling the strings um, and so on and so forth, I think I just, it just felt really natural. There's also this uh, element of the the different characters, and there's not just the you know there's not just the Nella versus Hazel. There's the switching of kind of perspectives mm-hmm. in first person and first person, um, and also characters from past and present who sort of have their story play in between Nella and um, kind of Hazel's as well. Um, mm-hmm. And again, was that more organic, the bringing in of the the Diana and the uh, Kendra, or was that something you had more in mind from the beginning? Yeah, you know, that's that's a good question. That part took a little while longer because when I first wrote the book, I was like, I just need to get the story down. Like I quit, quit my job to do, finish this book. And I was like, okay, because with other things, I've started projects and gotten into them and then dropped them. I think in this case, though, I did have an idea of how it would end um, very early on. But that being said, I really just had Nella's voice in the whole book, the first draft. Like I, she, Kendra Ray and Diana are in the book in that first draft, but they don't actually get to speak on the pages. Like we don't get their point of view. We only get Nella's point of view of them. Um, and then I remember after writing the first draft, I was like, first of all, Nella is like a ball of nerves all the time in a lot of ways. Um, (laughs) and Wagner can be a really 
stressful place to be. And so I think adding, I was like adding first person voices um, of Kendra Ray and Shawnee and Diana just felt like as a love writing first person, but I also felt like it would just be kind of a breath of fresh air and a different switch to get the perspectives because I don't know. I feel like in real life, you can't really, you don't know the whole story in real life. Um, but I kind of love the idea of getting to show that real story in the book because that's important. Like all of these things inform our perception of this world in the book, but then also I think makes Nella's story that much more important and makes it just really clear what's at stake. Like what we've seen happen before at Wagner books really impacts um, I, I hope the reader's understanding of the end and who she just, yeah, <laughs> what happens. <laughs> yeah, I think um, it was really interesting, like, picking it up. And then, like, the first, um, is it the prologue, is actually set in the 80s. And I was like, oh, it's not what I was expecting, because yeah. I knew it was set in the present day. So, um, yeah, I really like yeah. how you sort of interwove that in. And as you say, there's you. actually quite a cast of characters um, in the book. And, like, Nella's obviously the protagonist, but we do get to know these other characters as well. And without giving anything away, um, that, you know, there are some characters who we don't quite find out what happens to them at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so we wondered if you are considering, like, revisiting any of the characters at any point in the future. Um, I mean, obviously, you don't have to answer this if you're not quite sure yet. But, um, yeah, we, like, would love to revisit this world. So we wondered if you would do. Oh, thank you. That That's so exciting to hear. I, I mean, I am so into in a lot of ways the idea of continuing to revisit them and I think it's a possibility um right now I'm I'm not quite working on the next book although it's all living up here um although with the tv show um I'm co-writing the the script right now and in a lot of ways that's so satisfying because I get to I get to revisit them but also they can exist beyond the book. And so we can add even more details that we couldn't get at and really get to show Owen and Malika and some of the other Wagner characters that, you know, we don't have enough space to see in the book. So, so I am, I am kind of finding my way through the TV show and then hopefully, I don't know, we'll, we'll see. (laughs) Stay tuned. Yeah. And um, you've led us perfectly on to the next question, which is all about the, the TV adaptation, which is currently in the works at uh, Hulu. Um, how's that process going? So obviously you're co-writing. Um, do you have any hints or uh, backstage uh, gossip, gossip backstage? Info? <laughs> uh, yeah, about how the show's going. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't share too, too much yet, just because we're still in the early stages. But um, but yeah, I, I have been working on the pilot script um so the first episode draft um just we just turned it in i'm I'm working with an experienced co-writer um who will be announced i think in a few weeks um and but it's been a lot of fun i think i think for me i'm i can be a long-winded person as you can tell through this interview uh (laughs) and so i think it's a really um a really good exercise for me to really try to get as much out of sentences and words um, through the script than with the book, because I think that now I have so many, I mean, I don't have as much room page wise, but I do have a lot of other elements that I can use at my disposal. So I'm also a big music person. So like to be able to, to really think about what music's playing as they're moving through the world as Nella's going to work and like, 
really leaning into the genre elements. Um, I, it's been even just, I mean, we out, worked on the outline and now the, the pilot script, like, but just that work has been so satisfying. So I'm really excited to be learning and just really grateful that they wanted me to be a part of it too, because I think that I could see a world in which I wasn't, um, but it's it really, again, is so it's so much fun and I'm just learning a lot. So yeah that's that's really exciting i can't wait to watch it play out on screen and um yeah as you say great that you're a part of it and get to see that vision come to life um and kind of on the note of tv um but also books and film and things that we've been enjoying at the moment like we're always really interested to hear what our guests recommend um you know Mm. particularly when we're in the pandemic and we're all spending a lot of time inside like there's any books or um other yeah pop culture things that you'd like to recommend to us and also our listeners as well yeah, yeah. Um, along the lines of TV, I've been watching, one of my jobs has been to just watch more TV, I think, um, which I'm happy to do. Um, and so I started watching Search Party um, on HBO, which is, it's so weird, but it's so good. Um, and I think the way in which the characters are, um, so it starts off, I'll just say it starts off with um, this young woman played by Aaliyah Shawkat, um, who finds out that this girl that they, her and her friends went to college with is missing. And it just like, I think it's only four seasons right now. And all of the seasons are really wacky and take like a dive in different directions, but they're all so, I just would love to be in the writer's room to hear how they got to where they got, um, because the story just keeps changing and evolving and characters are so good so search party um can binge watch it that's what I loved about it too um and then uh reading wise I just started all her little secrets by Wanda M. Morris which doesn't come out till November I realize I'm like (laughs) teasing people maybe a little too much um but it starts off with this black uh female lawyer who is we know she's having an affair with her white boss at work um and she the book starts off with her finding him dead and just it's like a fast-paced thriller so I'm very excited about that workplace politics are my jam um and then also Lester by Raven Leilani which like everyone should read it's so good um her writing's beautiful and uh Edie is the protagonist is like She's hard. She's a hard person to follow, but it's so rich and it's so rewarding. And I think she's just so real. So highly recommend that book. Yeah, I love that book. And also interesting you mentioned Search Party because I watched the first season of that a few years ago when it was on in the UK. And then I don't know if they ever showed the rest of it here, Um, but it ends on such a cliffhanger that it's like stuck with me. And I'm going to have to yeah, hunt it out and watch the rest, I think. Highly recommend. I think especially the fact that because it is one of those seasons, right? Like each one ends in a a space where you're like, wait, no, yeah, <laughs> how can you do that? But now you don't have to wait. So okay, yeah, <laughs> might do that this weekend. So <laughs> do it. Let me know. Let me know how it goes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for speaking to us today, and uh, it was really great to hear all your thoughts on the book. And uh, good luck with the publication in the UK as well. It's exciting. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I really appreciate you both chatting with me and reading.
So a really big thank you to Zakia for coming on the podcast and chatting to us. We always love having authors on the show as I think it gives us a really lovely perspective into their work and the decisions that they made. So Francesca, I kind of wanted to ask you, um, this book, you know, was billed as being quite unusual in some ways. It's got this little sci-fi edge to it. Was there anything about the book that kind of surprised you in that sense? Mm. So as we discussed with Zakia in the interview, the other black girl blends genres from social realism to satire to horror and sci-fi. And we mentioned earlier that Get Out meets The Devil Wears Prada comparison that's been widely used to describe Zakia's novel. I think because of this comparison, which references the Jordan Peele horror movie Get Out and the workplace comedy The Devil Wears Prada, I knew that the novel was going to bring in different genres. So I wouldn't say that surprised me as such, but I did think it was really bold clever and thought-provoking. This is a novel about the insidious racism that permeates our society and that is fundamentally horrific. So I think bringing in horror, bringing in sci-fi into the story works really well. In our chat, Zakia talked about how the antagonism between Nella and Hazel, who is the other black girl of the title, is based in the fact that they're living in this world, they're operating in this company that's characterised by white supremacy. So I think underlying that horror through these genre elements is really effective and also makes the book stand out, makes it different and makes it really readable and very addictive as well. Also, The Other Black Girl is set in the New York publishing world and Zakia pinpoints many of the issues underlining that industry, specifically racism and a general lack of diversity. Helena, you worked in publishing in London for a brief while so I'd be quite interested in hearing your thoughts on that element of the book. Well, that's a really interesting question. In terms of publishing, um, I think that what's interesting about the book is um, the publishing world that Zakia writes about, in which Nella is an editorial assistant at this big publishing firm, it's set in the US, which I think uh, her experience seems to be different from the one that I know of, where editorial assistants in the UK aren't exactly assistants, they're more um, parts of this bigger, like wider team. Um, who work within the editorial team rather than being the actual assistant to the editor while in um, the other black girl Nella seems a lot more um, subject to the whims of her editor uh, and it's a lot more personality based that's quite an interesting one though uh, I'm sure people who've worked in editorial uh, may disagree with me in the UK so I think that the UK version of this book I might say that the book Queenie by Candace Carty Williams, in which the main character works in a, a, a newspaper or a magazine, if I remember, um, they do have that she does have a similar experience to Nella in being like the only black one there and the trouble she goes through. But it's more of a UK experience, I would say that one. Um, so that was quite interesting. And I, but I think that at its heart, what Zakia really kind of gets to the heart of is what it actually is really like kind of working in publishing, um, there is this real problem of sort of diversity and inclusion within the industry um, that the industry has been trying to tackle in terms of publishing people of colour rather than just, you know, white authors or male authors and getting more women and also finding, you know, getting more of a diverse executive together, you know, the managers and things like that. That's something publishing has been really struggling with. And a very interesting thing that I heard when I was working in publishing was that actually when it comes to blind editorial sort of like reading you know submitted books blind without any idea of who wrote them or whatever 
a lot of the editors involved would actually choose novels by or books by white authors it just kind of even the blind testing seemed to come through in a slightly racist way so that's a really interesting fact that i think kind of illustrates not that the not the industry is widely racist but that there is just a problem in the industry that allows for these things to kind of happen and Fenella's experience to happen and i think also which i should really capture as well is the idea of being the only one there too often I think that, especially in an industry like publishing, which is quite small and you know everybody, it reminds me of journalism as well, is that, you know, there's one of you there and you're the token person of colour, perhaps, and then, you know, they don't try and bother to think about your experience and they don't they don't use you for anything more than just having someone who's not white on the team. So I think what she's saying is really interesting and quite honest as well, especially as someone who worked in the industry. So it's a really interesting thing that she's done. And I think the book itself does take some twists and turns, but at its heart, the kind of experience that she is putting forward is a really important one to discuss and to talk about. And I think as an insider, she really hits the nail on the head for what it's like to work in publishing. And, you know, and you mentioned as well, when we were talking about this before, that closed experience, the cubicle experience, the experience of being at work all the time and being obsessed with it and it taking over your life. And that kind of happens to Nella. And I think that does happen to a lot of people in their 20s who join a new industry for the first time. It can be very overwhelming and isolating as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's a really interesting novel. I haven't really read one that does kind of what it does. Uh, maybe Queenie, as I said. I also wanted to quickly add that since our interview, it's been announced that Rashida Jones is the co-writer who's working with Zakia on the TV adaptation, which is super exciting. So yeah, we can't wait to watch that when it comes out. In the meantime, we urge you to go out and read The Other Black Girl. And we also wanted to say another thank you to Zakia Dalila Harris for coming on Love Sabers Watched. It was amazing to speak to her. I think now we're going to move on to talking about our final topic of the podcast, which is a new comedy special we've enjoyed. Comedian, actor and director Bo Burnham rose to success via YouTube some 14, 15 years ago. In more recent years, he's written and directed a critically acclaimed movie, 8th Grade, which was my first real introduction to him. And he's acted in films including the Oscar-nominated Promising Young Woman. And now he's back on the comedy with a Netflix special, Inside, which was written, directed and edited by Bo over the course of the last year during the COVID-19 pandemic. A year ago, he set himself a task, which is my understanding, of basically making a special over lockdown, which he made solely in his own like guest house, basically, with his own kit, everything done by him. Um, and I was really interested to watch Bo Burnham's Inside because I you know, loved, loved his work. Or a long time, mm. you know, <laughs> controversial as it definitely is. Um, and inside, I think, it seems like a really interesting look by a person who's, you know, very good at what they do, comedy and music and art and cinematography, look into what lockdown is kind of like from, like, a mental perspective, but also from, like, a social one. And, yeah, so I just have a quick chat about it. Um, Francesca, what did you think of Inside? Because I, I loved it. I thought it was amazing. Yeah, it's interesting because, from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, this sort of dropped a little bit out of nowhere. Yeah. That while you say he had set himself up this intention of filming it, he didn't announce like, oh, no, during right. that he was doing it or anything. Um, and as you said earlier, it came at a point where we are, um, in some areas of the world, kind of coming out of some of our pandemic restrictions. And so, um, yeah, so this period where we have been kind of confined in our homes 
is perhaps coming to an end. I'm hesitant to be too kind of like oh, definitive no. about that because who knows? But it's also a time in which it's now been over a year. So reflecting on this period feels perhaps appropriate to a degree in a way that it didn't like yeah. six months ago. Yeah, fair enough. Um, anyway, so yeah, I felt that like this kind of dropped out of nowhere and immediately started making waves on the internet. As you say, Bo Burnham is like quite a famous figure in lots of ways. But he did start out in a relatively, at the time, what was like kind of a niche space of YouTube was obviously changed in the intervening years. So for some people, this could have been like their first time, uh, you know, watching his stuff. For me, I'd seen Eighth Grade. I um, loved it. I think it's an ing- a great film mm. um, for anyone who hasn't seen it. It's a sort of depiction of like the internal life of this um, girl who's like 12, 13. And a lot of it is about her relationship with social media and with... Yeah. Um, with being online which I think is special a lot of that is is tied in there too as well as like what it's like was like kind of living through the pandemic um but yeah so I just like started watching it and it seems like you had a similar kind of experience not necessarily with no expectations but just not knowing what it was going to be like yeah and then it's very engrossing it is it's funny but it's also kind of depressing yeah it's very interior and it's quite like um there are these moments where a section ends, so as we alluded to, it's kind of like these, all, it's mostly songs, it's mostly via music, isn't yeah, it? These yeah. kind of spoof parody kind of songs that he's he has created. And at the end of each one, like, the screen often goes kind of black. Yeah. Um, or it zooms into the camera lens. And then you're left, um, if you're watching it like on a laptop or a phone, or even at a TV, you're left just like seeing yourself. Yeah. And I feel like it's quite a like, oh, here I am. Kind of. Watching from the couch, as he as alludes, he alludes to. to. I yeah. think, so my point being, he's very aware of how this is being watched and who this is being watched by and what our reactions might be. Like, everything is very deliberate in it. Yeah. And because he has this extreme understanding of how the internet works, I'm sure he knew that, like, a bunch of the songs would go viral, that yeah. the, the songs would have this impact. And he plays with that impact and plays with those expectations. So it's very layered, I suppose, is my point. And I yeah. think that's what kind of drew me in beyond just the humor and the kind of self-referential elements yeah i agree with you i always i watching it i was like it's so clever like down to the he knows precisely what it is he's trying to do he knows there's one great one where he puts on some music that a lot of free music a lot of youtubers use and like is in a chair ring light on very youtube being like hi guys i want to say hello to you and then he, he has like a knife in his hand he's just holding it the whole time and it's like it's so good because it's like the kind of the mania of YouTubers' lives sometimes and people online, everything's being sacrificed to... There's a bit he does at the end as well where it's like, what's real reality or what's online? Is everything you do a setup to a video? You know, mm. and his whole life, you know, the whole... He kind of shuts himself away or, you know, he, you know, he shows himself shutting himself away to write the special and to put himself in that mindset and, you know, become absorbed by the digital world that he's trying to, you know, create for. Um... And it's amazing because it's so... He says everything that I want to express about what it is living in today's hyper-capitalist digital world um, where everything is moving so quickly that there's, you know... Um, I'm I'm currently reading a book about, like, medieval manuscripts. I'm reading one about, like, the impending doom of the earth. And I'm like, yeah, I definitely feel like impending doom is nigh <laughs> um, with what everything's going on. And he expresses it all in a way that I like, I sit there and I said this to my boyfriend I was watching with, I was like, what's it like being that creative? What's it like being able to express yourself in that way, like so purely and so effectively and 
to say what you want to say in a means that communicates exactly what you, what you mean to somebody. It's amazing to me. Like you know the one where he react he's reacting to a video yeah. and then he and then the video continues into him reacting and he gets confused and keeps going and you're like such a good parody and pastiche of people of reaction videos like the reaction genre. Um, existential crisis, uh, mental health. There's periods in the thing where you're like, in that where you're like, are you actually having a mental breakdown, or are you like uh, showing what it was like? You have a mental breakdown, like in the five years that he meant he references, you know, having to take a break from live comedy. Um, it's just amazing. Well, yeah, because it feels at times very candid, but then you're just aware that it's being that everything is being filtered through this lens of the yeah. video camera, and so there's a bit where he's like. It's like he's playing a video game yeah. with himself and his um, like avatar that he's sort of playing with as such starts crying. <laughs> but it's very like, it's both humorous and it's also like clearly fake. Yeah. Then there's a part later on where he kind of breaks down and it seems a lot more sincere, like yeah. it seems genuine, but you're constantly questioning the genuineness of it and that's like a theme throughout the whole. Yeah. And I know that there's been some criticism of like in real life, Bo Burnham lives apparently with his wife or his long-term partner and uh, you know and he's not doesn't live alone which is kind of what it depicts in in the show but I don't think he was ever intending it to be like this is real it was almost like what is reality was kind of more the question yeah yeah and who am I and through the lens of this camera and I think that's something that not to get drawn into that's one thing that as an internet comedian he would know like don't get drawn in to the lie that people sell you online um what is the internet song? You know, welcome to the internet. Yeah, song that one as well. I think is one of my favorites. Was like, oh, can I interest you in everything all of the, all of the time? Yeah, yeah. And it's so true that you that is the experience of being on the internet. And of course, I think it's quite clever how he kind of um, it's about the pandemic, but he never explicitly names the pandemic at yeah. all. Um, and it feels like there are probably a lot of questions he already was having about the role of the internet in our lives. Yeah. Um, and for him being someone who has this backlog of content online, some of which he probably, well, he basically says he no longer agrees with what he said and he no longer feels associated with the person that he is still available. People are still able to see that version of him online, yeah. which is the case for a lot of people like who are in their 20s and 30s you know, and younger, I suppose, who have this like backlog of versions of yeah, themselves yeah. floating around the internet. Yeah, and always the danger of that being used against you. It's a really powerful visual for me of him, like, he projects, like, a cross onto himself, and, you know, it's like he's kind of, like, self-cancelling, but also questioning whether or not the cancellation is at all useful, and is it just meant to be this crucifying action, you know? Like, he, within a song, he talks about how bad he feels about things he's done, and then he talks about how bad he feels about how he reacted to how bad he felt. And he's like, oh, I don't think I'm really sincere in this song. So I started this song, I don't think I'm very sincere. <laughs> so, you know, again, it's really... For me, it feels really smart and pointed, and he's doing it on purpose, rather than, you know, letting himself... He's doing it on purpose, rather than, like, actually, you're not actually watching Bo Burnham have a full-on mental breakdown in a room, <laughs> which no, is what it is, actually. Yeah, and it's definitely, like, an uncomfortable watch. I think it's a watch that makes you kind of interrogate your own feelings um, yeah. about about lockdown, about the internet, about um, how we present ourselves and yeah. the, sometimes the falsities kind of associated there of like wanting to seem, you know, we were talking earlier about virtue signalling, you know, that that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot there. I think not every song will necessarily land with every person and no. like the whole concept wouldn't necessarily land with everyone. Um, I, I almost kind of ended it not really sure what I thought, but I, I 
you can't admit that you can't um, not admit that the songs are very catchy. Yeah. And also the message, like as you said, he seems to know what he wanted to do with it, and he seemed to have done that. Yeah. And actually, it was also quite interesting from a kind of creativity perspective because there's a lot of moments where you see him. It could all be falsified, but it feels like moments where he's kind of questioning, like what will the this thing he's trying to create ever actually get out in the open. Yeah. And so I think maybe for people who are like creators in whatever world they work in, will perhaps relate to those moments too and find those moments interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So final message there is watch it because it's, for me, a pretty significant piece of modern art, fully infused with the way that we live our lives today, but also very smartly put together. Um, and it does feel like I get to watch the creative process as well. I get to watch someone making their art as well. I commented to Connor that it felt like being in a theatre a bit. Yeah, it does for sure have that feeling. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So that is us finished with our uh, chat for today. Thank you very much again to Zakia for coming on the show. Her book is available now in all good bookstores, audiobook, ebook. You can get it, read it, enjoy it. Awesome. Done. Hooray. <laughs> And if there's anything that we haven't mentioned today or anything that you want us to talk about or that you want to say, you can get in touch with us on social media at Love's Labours Watched on Instagram, Real LLW on Twitter, and then Love's Labours Watched at gmail.com. Um, we release new episodes every month at the minute, so you can look forward to another one in July, August. That's July. In yeah. July. <laughs> and other than that, uh, thank you very much for listening. And um, stay safe.